Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Stephen Dyson to talk about his fabulous new book, Imagining Politics, Interpretations of Political Science and Political Television. This is a really, really interesting book that does a number of different things in terms of marrying popular culture and politics and political science as a discipline. But I'm going to let Stephen talk to us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to welcome Stephen Dyson to talk to us about his University of Michigan Press book, Imagining Politics. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Lily. It's good to speak with you. And I just wanted to ask you first to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this really interesting project on imagining politics. Well, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Connecticut. Um, And I started my research career in a, a very different area for the first half of my career, I was very interested in uh, political leaders and the kind of way that they make decisions. I work in international relations mostly. And then I made a big change and I started studying popular culture. I'd always been interested in it. I'd always thought of it as being a very political genre, a very political set of things, but I'd never seen it as something I could do research in. Um, But I think there is a link because I'd always studied political leaders because it was very hard for me to take theories of political science seriously on their own terms. When I was working in international relations, a lot of my colleagues would study these grand theoretical constructs. They'd call them realism or liberalism, neorealism. There are all sorts of names for them. And they would say that these things, uh, you know, explained the world. And I could never see them as serious explanations of the world. Um, And the only way that I could take these theories seriously was as regarding them as things that were inside the heads of these political leaders and were were driving their decisions. And so I always had the skepticism about grand theories of of politics, of political science, and I always needed a way into them that allowed me to take them seriously. And I think the link that I started to make with popular culture was to say that academic theories of political science – are just sort of imaginary constructs. They're not real. That doesn't mean they're not useful, but they're imaginary constructs. They're inside people's heads, the heads of political leaders, or when we're talking about popular culture, the heads of the general populace. And so I thought, you know, could I make that link between academic theories and between the representations of politics that were in popular culture? The first link that I tried to make was between science fiction and theories of international politics. And so I wrote a book in 2015 that was called Otherworldly Politics that looked at the ways that conflict and cooperation were represented in shows like Star Trek, Game of Thrones, Battlestar Galactica, and tried to make the argument that these were were real sort of representations of of how the world can be seen to, to work. After that book, I moved on to the project we're talking about, Imagining Politics, uh, which is about political television shows, not science fiction shows, but shows that, that portray political actors and political processes. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I got to the book. 
And and I wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, sort of the overarching discussion in the book, which is, as you note, about these sort of political television shows like The West Wing or Veep or Thick of It, um, as well as about the discipline of political science. And as you say, you sort of came at this because of the abstraction of political theories to help us understand the world. And of course, as political scientists, we are often dealing with the trying to see the world through these various theoretical lenses, as I also try to get my students to do um, in their in their work and their writing oftentimes. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how you sort of interpreted um, political science as a discipline through this construct of, I think, narrative. Um, that's that's what I'm understanding from your work. Yes, I'm, I'm, the fundamental argument of the, the new book, Imagining Politics, is that it, it, it addresses two types of stories about politics, a political science story about politics and a popular culture story about politics. And, and both of these stories are not real politics. They're not descriptions of how politics actually is. They're instead kind of abstract interpretations of what politics is. They, these stories tell us to look at some things and to ignore other things. They tell us that some actors are important and some actors are not important. They tell us that some ways of doing politics are legitimate and normal and some some others are not and i think where where i would maybe depart from the mainstream of political science is in saying that 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 it is just a story that political science is is kind of an academic story about politics and popular culture is kind of an entertainment industry story about politics but they're fundamentally homologous they're doing the the same they're performing the same function I think for, for the producers of popular culture, they would be quite amenable to this argument because it's saying to them that you've, or it's saying about their work, that this is actually a very serious representation of politics. The West Wing or the Thick of It or any of the shows in the book are not just frivolous entertainment. They actually you know, have real sort of intellectual and social purposes. So I think they, they might quite like the case that's made in the book. I think mainstream political scientists, some of them anyway, are going to be quite uncomfortable with the notion that they are telling stories rather than doing these very sort of serious, rigorous descriptions and explanations of political processes. They, they, they don't like the notion that they're, they're telling a story quite so much, but I think they are. Um, and, and that's one of the, the, the aspects of this book that really drew me to it when I first read it in, in process um, was that you were kind of looking at the discipline and sort of unpacking it, going back to the roots, going back to the foundation of political science as a contemporary discipline, not necessarily the Aristotelian um, sort of argument for it per se, um, but in the sort of modern sense of it. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you sort of dove into that and, and unpacked it, what is it that you were finding that helped you to sort of marry these two stories, these two stories of narratives together? Well, what you find is that modern political science in the United States uh, cannot, because of its history, be a sort of unbiased um, uh, reflection of 
of a, an objectively existing thing. And the reason why it cannot be that is that its own conceptions of what it's studying have changed throughout its history. I mean, the, the, the old theories of how American government used to work uh, were that, you know, you just had to kind of read the Constitution and the great documents, and that kind of told you uh, how it worked. And then you had a period sort of in the middle of the 20th century where, where the argument was the old documents and the, the pure study of institutions doesn't tell you anything. You've got to kind of understand the, uh, the way that political actors who are, you know, in some senses, fully rounded human beings behave uh, in, in, political, in the political system. And they quite often subvert uh, w- what should happen according to these great documents. And then later in the 20th century, you have the notion that actually these are not real human beings who are doing political things. They are, they are these sort of uh, automatons, these rational automatons uh, who are just stimulus, you know, empty, empty boxes in the middle of a stimulus response uh, sequence of events. And so the, the, the conception, even within one subfield, American politics, of what the subject matter is, has changed. Now, the reason it's changed, I would argue, is that the community that's, that comprises that part of the discipline has changed the way that they talk about the thing that they're studying. I don't think the thing itself has changed. I think the stories that are being told by the community of people who are working in political science have changed, which is just a long way of saying that... that I argue that political science is a sort of constructed and and quite internally focused community that develops its own language and set of meanings about what politics is. But there's no necessary relation between that internal language of how political scientists see politics and the actual objectively existing, if there is such a thing, uh, uh, you know, real world uh, uh, existence of of politics. It's it's an internally told story. and once you've made that leap, you know, if you've gone with me that far, it's not, I, I don't think, too much of a further leap to analogize communities of political scientists telling each other stories about this thing they call politics to uh, showrunners and producers and screenwriters um, telling each other stories about politics. You know, is, is there that much difference between a Richard Neustadt, a very famous political scientist, and Aaron Sorkin, the creator of The West Wing, I would argue that, that there isn't. They're engaging in fundamentally the same exercise. And so, and so in, that, in that capacity, I wanted to then layer on to this discussion of political science as the discipline that, as you say, sort of has been explaining to itself and to the world outside of it. This is how politics works. Um, This is how we understand it. These are the terms we use. This is the narrative in which it fits. Um, And then you sort of take up a variety of different television shows, specifically television shows, not films. Um, And I'd like to ask you about why that, um, although I might think I know the answer. and and then to some degree, which of these, how in these particular shows help us to understand politics as well as the discipline of political science? So the, the way the book is structured is that um, each chapter pairs a television show about politics with a big theory um, uh, or, or a big book, a very famous book uh, from political science uh, that, that seems in some way the natural sort of 
cousin of of that television show and works back and forth between the two stories to see in in what ways are they telling similar stories or in what ways does you know maybe the 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 television show shows us something that's missing in the political science theory or or vice versa and so it's this this constant dialogue between these two forms of stories about politics and so for example in the the first substantive chapter i pair the the west wing um with richard newstadt's notion of presidential power and and argue that both of them are telling similar stories about these kind of polymath elite uh paternalistic figures um who occupy and work uh, who occupy the presidency and work around the presidency and how they are essentially kind of the teachers of the nation um which you know some people would regard as being a very good and progressive thing and others regard as being a a sort of patriarchal uh, uh, or a, a non-progressive or, or patronizing uh, type of thing and the, the book proceeds in in that fashion by pairing these two uh, these two stories the, the political science story and the and the popular culture story and, and using one to illuminate the other um in terms of why I chose television shows rather than film that is an excellent question um I well I, I you said you had an idea as to why I might have done that so I'm actually interested in in why you think it was um and then if if it's a better answer than the one I was going to give, just say you're right <laughs> <laughs> well I mean as 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 somebody who also thinks about and writes about popular culture and politics um my answer basically is that the narrative space that television allows you is much greater and more extensive than even a three-hour film or Martin Scorsese making three and a half to four-hour films these days um and so that there is a lot more breathing room and a lot more space to develop and extend narrative constructs in television series than there is in film. Um, but we do have very famous films about politics from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington on. And so that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was why television series as opposed to iconic film presentations? Yeah, uh, your answer was was excellent and I'll take it. <laughs> um so I, so I think that was that was a big part of it that there is a, a narrative richness, as you say, in the the long form that is is different in film. I mean, it's it's present in film, and 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 film is in some ways a, a more sort of uh, I don't know. I'm going to get in trouble, but a more multi-dimensional medium. You know, the the film would tend to be denser, but uh, you'd be talking about the, the the kind of soundtrack and the shot selection and all the rest of it. I think television's richness is. Is, is largely in its narrative um, and that seemed to you know lend itself to my purposes um also once you've started uh down the the route of television shows you want to you want to include some sort of generic um uh, uh, uh comparison you know you don't want to be comparing apples to oranges and it, it it did seem that there was uh a lot of richness in comparing like for like television show to television show rather than kind of uh, getting into comparing film to to television. Um, the other interesting thing to say now that I think about it, I wonder if it's true that that politics actually works better in a televisual form than in a, than in a filmic form. I mean, have there been more compelling, can you think of a film that's offered a more compelling representation of politics than the West Wing or Bargain, another show that I, or the thick of it, 
I, I think I would go so far as to say that the television shows are richer than the filmic representations of politics, although that, that might be controversial. I mean, I think I think you're right. And oftentimes in films, the the role of the politician, be it a mayor um, or a governor or a house member or senator or even the president is often a plot component. Um, and you think about movies like Air Force One, which famously has, you know, the president fighting terrorists. Um, but it's again, it's a plot component and it's not as much a meditation or delving into um, understanding of politics. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other thing that went on that, that, that is sort of alluded to, it's not a central part of the, the book, but it's in there, is that television itself has changed during the period I cover. I mean, the TV shows that I cover are, for the most part, uh, quite contemporary television shows. Um, and if you think of the importance of the West Wing to not just political television, but television per se, it was one of the first shows that... Uh, purported to tell a whole story kind of in sequence. Like you can watch the West Wing out of order, but the, the story of the Bartlett administration is being told from uh, early in, it, uh, early in the, the first term till after the end of the, the second term. And it has its own internal history. It's kind of creating a self-contained uh, world, which did seem to be um, you know, useful for my purposes. If, if you like, it's sort of raw empirical material that is potentially explained uh, or, or interpreted by political science uh, theories. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that television does often provide a, a much more linear opportunity um, than than film is uh, is is can and often is a sort of back and forth, um, perhaps in time or in space, um, in in terms of analysis. Um, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit more about these particular shows themselves and, you know, to some degree um, to ask you to highlight if there were any surprises as you were working through your sort of political science concepts and then trying to or working with them in context of, say, Borgen, which is a huge favorite of mine, um, and Scandal and Veep. Um, and Black Mirror. Yeah, so the um, the, the interesting, I mean, all, all of them were <laughs> were surprising in their in their own way, and it, it was. I think it uh, well, it's, it sounds like a self regarding thing to say, but 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 I think that that method of setting the political science theory in dialogue with the show, the shows allowed me to see both in a in a new light. Um, and allowed me to 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 gain new insights from uh, you know from both the about both the theories and the shows. The thing that was surprising, I suppose, you know, a new revelation to me was it concerned a, a British TV show called um, The Thick of It, which was a, a TV show that was about what are called special advisors in the British government and and special advisors uh, or spads. I mean, that's what they were. It was shortened to. Uh, spads were these creatures that were brought in by politicians in the late 1990s and the you know they're still rampant in British government today uh, as sort of these uh, you know alternatives to the traditional bureaucrats in Britain the traditional civil service and the view had become prevalent that the civil service was uh, was running the government essentially and the politicians couldn't get enough control it was sort of a version of the deep state um, argument 
And so when Tony Blair's Labour government came into power, they were determined to exercise their own control. And they brought in this whole coterie of, uh, of special advisors uh, who tended to be sort of foul mouthed and macho and they like football and, uh, you know, bullying people and, and all the rest of it. And it made for, for very entertaining um, television. And I think when I'd watched The Thick of It when it first came out, you know, prior to even beginning this project, I thought it was a, you know, uh, rampantly funniest, funniest TV show I've ever seen you know, a totally hilarious uh, thing, but I hadn't understood its deeper message. And I think working through the book, I got the deeper message, which is that this was a television show about the sort of end of centrist technocracy, the, the kind of collapse of the politics that were represented by Tony Blair and David Cameron in Britain and by uh, the Clintons uh, and to some extent Obama in the United States. You know, this this notion that, what you had to do was be basically sensible, basically rational. And the image you had to project to the public was one of kind of cool managerial competence and rationality uh, and compromise and, and technocracy. And that the joke in the thick of it was the politicians were, uh, you know, frantic and essentially incompetent. And the special advisors were constantly trying to, to cover it up and w- would usually make things worse by trying to cover it up. But I think that really captured something of what politics was prior to about 2016. Um, and it was this notion of, of, you know, managerial elite competence. And that looks kind of poignant in retrospect, um, because, of course, all that got blown away with, and this is in the book as well, with Brexit in the United Kingdom, with the election of Trump in the United States, where all of those old certitudes as to how you might win, for example, a referendum on the European Union or how you might win the American presidency by presenting a rational, competent case, <laughs> they were all blown out of the water because what you really needed to be was a, was a sort of, you know, person who set themselves on fire, an outrageous clown who said all sorts, you know, anything. Um, and then you would get all the attention and then you would win a referendum or you'd win the, the presidency. Um, and I think looking at the thick of it in in light of the line of argument I developed in the book and also obviously in in light of what had happened since that series ended, really gave it a new poignancy. It really is exposing a a sort of hollowness that no one had seen at the time in that view of how politics is done. And you you combine it with Veep, and I believe they were both originally developed by the same showrunner, show creator. Um, and that Veep is uh, also about a complete absurdity in many of the same ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about the comparison between the thick of it and Veep as farces? Yes, I, yes, they were. They, they are both Armando Inucci, uh, who is a Scottish, um, uh, you know, TV writer, Scottish creator. Uh, they, they were both Armando Inucci shows, and Armando Inucci actually has a a much longer history in in mostly British comedy and British satire, you know, before the thick of it and before uh, the, but it's it's almost unknown outside of the outside of the United Kingdom, um, uh, and so you're right that that Veep was Veep came after uh, the thick of it, and Veep was about the I mean obviously uh, as everyone knows and it's in the title about the the vice presidency, which is you know this sort of superfluous. <laughs> uh, office you know and there's the, the the sort of core absurdity is um you're very close to immense power but you actually have no power um at all 
and that was the thing that that Inucci was trying to trying to play play upon the absolute absurdity of being in that situation and how would it make uh, people behave. Um, the 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 funniest thing about Veep, I think, was was when it did in fact uh, intersect with uh, with real world politics. <laughs> A glorious story about Hillary Clinton, um, which is uh, she sent to uh, Julia Lewis Dreyfus, the the actress who plays Selena Meyer in Veep. Uh, she sent her a note um, uh, saying, you know, dear Julia, I hope you get everything you want. Uh, as Veep, you know, gun control and uh, healthcare reform and, and, you know, other other progressive things. And Julia Lewis-Dreyfus was delighted to get this note and she put it up on a dressing room uh, wall. Later, it turned out um, through, it might have been through the, the Russian hacks of the DNC emails or WikiLeaks or some, you know, some internal Clinton campaign uh, uh, correspondence was made public. Um, from around the same time when when Clinton had sent Julia Louis Dreyfus this letter, um, and the internal ca- uh, correspondence was between Hillary Clinton and, and an aide. Hillary Clinton wrote to this aide saying, "A friend has told me that I should associate myself with Julia Louis Dreyfus, misspelt, <laughs> uh, and the show Veep, and I should send something to her. But I've never seen the show, and I've no idea who she is. Can you look for me and help?" <laughs> And this became public, and Julia Louis Dreyfus uh, uh, printed out that email and put it alongside the initial nice letter from Hillary Clinton on her dressing room wall, because uh, because it just absolutely illustrated the point of the show, which is these politicians are uh, you know uh, one thing in public and another thing in private, and and when when you discover both, they become quite farcical. And and so in in terms of the the shows that are perhaps not quite farce, perhaps. Um, although you do, you know, you do take up Yes Minister, which is another another sort of slapsticky um, show that I I used to watch a while back on PBS, um, as well as Scandal, which is kind of insane a lot of the time, and House of Cards. There's there's kind of extremism in lots of the shows themselves. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked with your um, sort of dialoguing with? political science theories yeah the um i mean uh, they are another word for extremism would be that they are heightened representations of the thing they're trying to they're trying to portray um and in popular culture you 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 do that because you think the thing that you're you're heightening um is an essential truth (laughs) uh, that you're you're trying to expose and so it's a sort of dramatic device to say this is how i think the world really works. So in Scandal, of course, the politicians are sort of, uh, you know, literally murderous, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and unbelievably uh, uh, cynical. Um, but of course, that that's not just frivolity. I mean, that is actually a fairly popular uh, view of what politicians are like. They might not be actual murderers, um, but they are, in some sense, pathological. Um, and uh, the the relationship to political science theories is they are also kind of extremist representations or, or heightenings of ways that politicians actually behave. And the, the purposes are different. In Scandal, you know, the, the politicians are, are shown behaving in extreme ways because it's kind of entertaining, but it's also exposing an underlying truth. In political science theories, like rational choice theory, um, the politicians are, are portrayed as being, you know, utterly 
self-calculating and self-regarding. Um, I think a rational choice theorist would say, yes, of course, they're not kind of human robots who are making complex mathematical calculations before they do everything. But but that is a heightening or an abstraction that allows you to get at an abstract truth, which is most of the time they are going to do the thing that will best advance their political interests. And and in that regard, you you conclude the book, as you've already sort of made reference to, to populism, the theory of populism. Um, and in in the chapter on understanding this concept and this theory, you bring in Black Mirror and The Apprentice. Um, and, and you note also, as you sort of starting out the book, talking about the fact that um, the election of Donald Trump was, you know, sort of an interesting component of the analysis. Can you talk a bit about that final chapter? Yes. So the... I mean, the final chapter is is sort of also the the first chapter, not not literally, but it's the the, the final chapter is about Brexit and Trump, and I think the the phenomena of Brexit and Trump were the things that really finally made, finally convinced me to write the book. Um, I mean, after the after the book I'd done in twenty fifteen of the worldly politics, um, it it did cross my mind that I might want to. <laughs> do some other types of research and I might have um, uh, colleagues or evaluators who wonder why I'm watching so much television. You know, would it really be politically wise for me to, <laughs> to write another book uh, about televised fictions? And so I thought I might just kind of leave, leave the subject alone. But then Brexit happened kind of in the middle of 2016. It's a total shock to me. I mean, I'm from, I'm from the United Kingdom, but I'd left in 2000 and I just didn't recognize um what had happened. I mean, it just seemed inconceivable that the country could make, uh, could make that decision. And then Trump got elected, uh, sort of five, six months, um, later. And there were a lot of, a lot of comparisons. Um, and that led me away from an understanding of politics through normal theories of political science and the quote, normal TV shows we've been watching, uh, we've been talking about, sorry. Um, and towards trying to find other texts that could help me and others understand what had happened with Brexit and Trump. Uh, political science wasn't going to help. I mean, political science had completely failed to predict either. In fact, was strongly predicting um, the opposite. It effectively said the, these outcomes are impossible. And in fact, the people who who prosecuted the Remain uh, campaign in Britain and the people who had tried to stop, stop Trump, both his opponents in the Republican primary and then Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary, they had followed good political science advice, um, or at least advice political scientists would recognize as sensible. You know, in Britain, make it about the economy. Um, that's how you win referendums. Most voters are risk averse and they'll vote on the economy uh, when push comes to shove. Uh, uh, Hillary trying to avoid, uh, or sorry, trying to maintain a sort of centrism and trying to rely on kind of uh, uh, putting together a coalition that you that was you know where you'd identify voters by analytics and rely on demographics and and you don't really make, need to make many bold policy offers because um, you'll have a better kind of data and turnout operation all, all good political science all completely hopeless in in stopping Trump and stopping Brexit um, and so the the texts I ended up with as ways to understand this new era were uh, Black Mirror which is a, a British uh, techno dystopia it's very well known in America through the through Netflix um, that 
that I think narrates or, or, or tries to understand the influence of social media and smartphones mostly on not just our political discourse, but our lives um, in general, and largely argues that that influence has been pernicious. Um, and that, I think, gave us an interesting look at things like the influence of Facebook on the American election, the influence of fake news, um, you know, and, and deliberate attempts to confuse people via social media and via untrue uh, news stories, which I think had, had played a big part in both the, the Brexit decision and in the election of, of Donald Trump. Um, and then The Apprentice, which, you know, once the man became president, really takes on a whole different valence. You go back and watch The Apprentice, um, as very few people, I, I think, of my um, uh, socioeconomic class <laughs> did at the time, uh, but, but a lot of ordinary people watched, watched The Apprentice and, and understood or, or took a view of Trump that came from The Apprentice, and you, you watch it in retrospect, and it's, it's both chilling and fascinating. I mean, Trump is portrayed on The Apprentice as um, a, a very sort of powerful decision maker, uh, he actually comes across as a, a pretty sort of reasonable and evidence-driven uh, person, um, but he's also he's he's promoting or he's he's circulating a, a, an, an understanding of success and an understanding of power in The Apprentice that I think is quite important to his later political rise. Um, in The Apprentice, he he never talks about success as being something that you work for, really. Or he never talks about being successful in life as something that's based on preparation and kind of the diligent pursuit of, you know, education um, or, or generating a long-term reputation for trust or anything that, that we might usually understand to be the building blocks for personal or political success. Success on The Apprentice is, you know, sort of innately given. You know, Trump will say things like, you're either a good negotiator or you're not. It's in the genes. You're, bo you're born with it. You shouldn't spend a long time uh, studying a trade or how to be successful, what you really need to be is just bold and kind of take action and and you're an inherently excellent person or you're not. And I, Trump, am an inherently excellent person. Um, and that's an image of, of success and an image of authority that I think was very helpful to him when he when he moved into the political sphere, but it, but it had its roots in the American consciousness in Trump as presented on that television show. And so I wanted to ask you one sort of broader question in sort of a conclusionary way. And the idea of, um, you know, the title of your book is Imagining Politics. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the toggling or the dialogue between um, the citizenry, myself included, our understanding of politics that we see in fiction, you know, on the on the television, and then at the same time that we see also on television, the politics that's presented to us in news. Um, and, you know, again, we get it in a variety of sources, but how does this, this sort of imagining happen in ways that we may or may not even be um, knowledgeable about or understanding in terms of the influences back and forth. Yeah, that's an excellent, an excellent question, excellent point. Um, I mean, you mentioned the the news. This is a a whole other genre of fiction. I, I think, like political science, that the news presents itself as a kind of unbiased, straightforward representation of what what is really happening. Um, 
But of course it's not. It's, it, you know, like any presentation of the social world, it's suffused with choices about what to show and what not to show and, and how to frame things and what's important and what's not important. And I think if we were to, to, to regard both political science and the news as themselves laden with narratives and much closer to television shows about politics than, than, than we imagine them to be, we, we would be a lot, a lot closer to the, to the truth of things. Um, so I think that's, that's one important uh, way to address uh, your question. Um, the other kind of last thing I, I want to say to you is, is something that I, I, I develop in the final chapter of the book, which is to say that um, when we get into talking about Brexit and talking about Trump and we say our, our politics is, is defined now by a populism uh, and a, a, a sort of, you know, weird view of reality that comes through that, that is represented by shows like Black Mirror and, and Donald Trump. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we, we do seem to have moved away from the kind of bloodless technocracy that was in things like The Thick of It and some of the other shows that I talk about in the, in the book. And we're in a new era, a populism of the right, a populism of Black Mirror and, and, and Donald Trump. But the fact that we made that change shows that politics can be uh, reconstructed in different ways, that, that the old verities are not necessarily always true, that, that through the stories we as society tell about ourselves, we can remake our politics. And so it should be possible to remake a politics that's different from the current populist era. And I think if, if you are someone who is not comfortable with the, the values that are represented by Brexit or the values that are represented by Trump, the sort of glimmer of hope is is in just that, the fact that another different types of politics should be possible and there are other stories that can be told. And so with, with that happy coda, um, what is it that you are working on now, Stephen? Yeah, I say, I say that happy coda. I should also we're talking on the 13th of December and yes. I'm from Britain uh, and overnight there was the sort of absolute rejection by uh, Brexit Britain of a, a different story about politics that was offered by Jeremy Corbyn, the, the leader of the Labour Party, a figure that many an analogised to uh, Bernie Sanders or to uh, Elizabeth Warren in some ways in the United States. Um, and so the <laughs> clearly the stories that we can convincingly tell about politics are not infinitely malleable and some, are, some seem to take hold more than, more than others. Um, what am I working on now? Uh, that is a, uh, a good question. A couple of things, but the one that's, that's of most relevance to, to the book that we're talking about um, is a, a project I'm doing about uh, Francis Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama is a political theorist who, uh, whose big idea was the notion of the end of history. Uh, his, I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, his, his argument that at the end of the Cold War, um, sort of liberal democratic capitalism had triumphed and there was no other, there was no better form of uh, socioeconomic organization that was possible. And he, he was widely interpreted as having predicted a sort of, uh, you know, Reaganite or Thatcherite utopia and being this sort of insufferable Western triumphalist. And that's the kind of, you know, standard reading of Fukuyama as a political theorist and as a public intellectual. But there is an, an, an interesting fact about Francis Fukuyama, which is he also turns out to be a massive fan of science fiction. Um, 
he writes about science fiction a lot in his own work, including in his, you know, straight up academic work, as well as the, the popular writing that he does. And he also hosts um, movie screenings um, uh, of, you know, movies like Blade Runner or uh, Mad Max uh, or Gattaca, uh, you know, uh, science fiction dystopias. And so the project that I'm working on is, again, about that dialogue between a, a work of political science, a theorist, Francis Fukuyama, and works of popular culture, these dystopian speculative fictions that he seems to be drawn to. And the question that I'm asking is, if, if Fukuyama is really such a utopian, uh, triumphalist prophet of the triumph of liberal democratic capitalism, why is he constantly fascinated by uh, films that show Earth in about 20 or 30 years' time as an absolute nightmare, <laughs> and largely as an absolute nightmare uh, uh, for reasons that seem to have been caused by liberal democratic capitalism. You know, in Blade Runner, uh, a giant corporation produces artificial humans and other giant corporations have made the earth uninhabitable. And, you know, is, is Fukuyama really as confident in liberal democratic capitalism as, as he is taken to be. And I think my argument is no. And you can see he's not confident by the fact that the futures he imagines are pretty dark. And well, when you finish that book, will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it? Yes, I'll be happy to, uh, happy to do that. I mean, this, this assumes that we can convince someone to publish it. Um, I understand. So. <laughs> <laughs> he is hoping. He's hoping. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen Dyson, for joining me today to talk about imagining politics, interpretations in political science and political television. This is published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press. Stephen, is there some place that you would direct people to buy a copy of your book besides the University of Michigan Press website? I, you know, I wish that, uh, that um, the brick and mortar local bookstores were uh, still more prevalent and that I could point people to uh, to one in particular, I would just say um, everyone knows the classic place to buy books in addition to the, uh, the University of Michigan uh, website, but I also uh, think it's important to support local bookstores. And so if you have one and it stocks the book, <laughs> please buy it there. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about imagining politics. You're welcome. It was, it was a pleasure. <laughs>